My name is Chino Liao. Joining you today for the interview portion of this podcast. But before we get to that, let me ask you first how you like my solo pod for this week. Yeah, it has been brought to my attention that nobody really likes my voice. In fact, people actually tune out and say that the solo pods are their least favorite part of the podcast. Well, to those people, I say, wala kayong magagawa kasi show ko to. <laughs> so, it's a little aggressive, you know, but it, I mean, what, what can you do? We are in political times right now and everything is getting hot and heavy. And that's why I decided to talk about that political climate we are in right now a climate that is so hot and humid and sticky and yes i just say i just said hot and humid again because it's so so goddamn hot like the next time i'm in the u.s and i'm freezing i am only going to think back to this moment This moment right here right now where i am just sitting and already burning calories The world is a sauna. We are on fire. Forged in fire. Back to our guest. Our guest, Sean Alonzo, is somebody you might know better as Balete Blades. He is an Instagram knife maker who is renowned the world over in the world of the culinary arts, knife making, and even just handicrafts in general. Sean has been featured in various uh, social media articles, publications, even Erwan Huslaff was uh, good enough to have him on. So I feel like he's the perfect guy to ask about Forged in Fire, one of my favorite shows of all time. Of course, it's also like asking Gordon Ramsay about Cooking Master Boy or Food Wars, right? But you know, you know, you said it in the episode. So here we go. Without further ado, let's talk to Sean Alonzo of Maleta Blades. Today's guests on social media are known him for his knife making, but today we actually get to meet the man behind Balletta Blades. Let's welcome Sean Alonzo on the podcast. Hi, Sean. Uh, hi, Shino. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So I know you don't usually interview people but or get interviewed by people, but thank you for doing this. I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. 
the top names with sounds <laughs> yeah, very psychotic. That's easy. Yeah, you know, so we're going to talk about here. It's always a pleasure to talk to an enthusiast, uh, regardless of the industry they're in. I know you mentioned when you were when you invited me here, you were a fan of Force and Fire. So that, that just made me giggle a little bit. So, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're going to get into all of that, you know, Force and Fire, bladesmithing, all of that. We're going to do all of that. But first, I want to get to know um, the person who does all the smithing, all the knife making. Um, how did you get into this industry? Because this seems like such a very unorthodox way to uh, earn a living. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been a, a little bit weird. Uh, my background is I was a professional product designer, and um, I have a degree from Benil, um in industrial design. Right. And um, ah, fellow Benil, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. you're from Benil also. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Also, fun fact. The people working on this podcast also from Benil. Oh, so, hey guys. Let's go SDA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, I worked for, as a product designer for a while, although um, I, I was starting to see, I, I didn't really like what I was doing because like, if you work on a product for a very long period of time and, and then eventually I, I know that these products will only last a certain lifespan, right? Uh, I used to do fast-paced consumer products. Like, um, I worked for a company that did like a thousand pieces, 10,000 pieces, a hundred thousand pieces. So the things that I knew I was making would end up in the ocean inside some sea turtle after like a, a few years. Right. And I, I right. think you like that. Yeah. I have no gripe against people who do that. It's just not something I wanted, I wanted to do with my life. Um, I, I always had a hobby for making things like ever since I was little and, um, back in college, I had, um, a mentorship with Ryan Howe. Uh, Ryan Howe is a sculptor for 13 Lucky Monkey. Um, 13 Lucky is this jewelry sculpting company. Uh, and they opened my eyes to uh, mixed materials. Like I really enjoyed how they were able to mix, um, silver, brass, gemstones, I'm not, I'm not sure if they did wood, but then I, I saw how they were able to craft like these really intricate rings using not just one, like they used several materials to make something that looked really good. So I wanted to do something like that. So in my spare time, as I was working as a product designer, I'd like, I'd sometimes make rings, you know, um, although I, I, I did it secretly just for personal use. And then I thought, you know, I could start making knives because um, it's a tool, right? Um, I was an industrial designer and industrial design is basically the design of everyday things, um, cars, lamps. And something that I really enjoyed doing was making a tool, you know? So I thought either hammers or knives, <laughs> I, I screwed up with a hammer, but then I made a knife relatively successfully. And then um, people were asking how much it was. And then I thought, you know, I, I'm not going to sell this. I, I, I already have a job and I didn't want to, you know, get into a... The, actually, I did. I, I did want to do my own thing, but then I didn't think I was ready to sell the work. So um, after a while, I felt super restless with my digital design job. So... I started like posting a lot of my work online 
and um, I got a Blade Forums subscription. Blade Forums is this online um, community of knife enthusiasts. And at that time, when I got the subscription, like I was, you know, putting my work out there. I, I wasn't really expecting to sell anything. And at that time, that wasn't the focus. At that time, the focus was to like make a really good tool because I, I like, I like making really good tools. Um, something I could actually use myself. And, and then people started like giving me offers like, Hey, um, are you willing to sell this? And how much are you willing to sell it? And then I was just like throwing around random prices at that time. It's like, I, I didn't have any computation. I was just throwing around prices. And then after a while, you know, I jumped ship. It's like, this is getting a little bit crazy. It's like, I, I think I could make this into my full-time work. And that's what I did right now. So yeah, um, it got to a point where right now my current wait list is already a year long. And uh, yeah, wow. the, the price point is relatively comfortable at where it is. So yeah, it's been a really strange ride. Right. No, because yeah, you said it yourself. It's strange. So what was the transition like? Like how did your family feel about you leaving a stable job to go into business for yourself? How did you adjust? How was that whole process? Well, I'd say it it was a stable job, but then it wasn't a comfortable stable job. I had to fly into Iligan in Mindanao uh, to work for that company because that was where their satellite office was. And the the pay was not bad, but then I I wasn't happy with the workload because in fast-paced product manufacturing, you uh, have to keep putting new things out. Like we, we did like so many products per month, like 40 to 60. Um, and you know, some of these products, like we had to design from scratch and others, like there were already, um, existing templates for it. We just changed it up a little bit, but then it, it was a lot of work. And there was five of us in the design team at that time. I think five, it's like around, yeah, around five. I can't remember. Um, but then we were doing, we were doing like 10 to 12 hour work days and it was really insane. And sometimes we even did Saturdays. And since the company was task based, we didn't get paid overtime or anything like that. We were, um, compensated. Uh, we, we were compensated a flat rate based on the tasks that we were able to achieve. It's like, I remember one time I even came home from the office at like 1 a.m. So. It was, yeah. Wow. Okay. And, and then you had to go back to work the next yeah, day at 9 a.m. Yeah, exactly. They were like very yeah. particular about okay. coming into the office at 9 a.m. But then there was no cutoff time. Like, um, wow. so it, it was really uncomfortable. And like sometimes we had to stay the whole day in the office on a Saturday. Like, <laughs> no one wants to go to work wow. on a Saturday. Yep. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And at that time, you know, Iligan is like two hours away from Marawi. And, there was, there was like, it, it wasn't that, it, it wasn't unsafe, but then my parents were worried because like at, at night you could hear like random fireworks slash gunshots. Like you didn't know which one it was, wow. but then yeah. I'm pretty sure fireworks don't rapid fire. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, they can, right? if you have one of those, um, uh, we taste you the, the loud popping fire, the Roman candles. Maybe, maybe, the but Roman then I wasn't candles. seeing any, I wasn't seeing any fireworks. I was just hearing the sounds. 
Okay. So yeah, and um, it was a really strange adjustment because I, I'm like a Chinese-looking guy in a place where <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was right. uncomfortable. So they actually were right. happy that I was moving back to Manila, uh, but then they were still like pushing me to find a job that was similar to that, and there were, but then I didn't want to stay in that. I didn't want to stay in that industry. So yeah, it was. It, it taught me a lot, though. Like a lot of the ways that I present knife designs to my clients, especially when I was trying to get let the blades off the ground, was using right. the skills that I learned there. Like I do some kind of artwork draft to present to the client, and that's also how I was able to climb my price point. Because like if I've never done a design before and I want to do it, and I know it's going to cost a lot more, I make some kind of design and pitch it. And sometimes people say no, and sometimes they do. So that's how the price point gets to climb slowly. Right. Okay. This is all great. I say bladesmithing, or as you call it, knife making, isn't the easiest thing to start doing. Like I, I'm personally me. I'm a fan of forged fire, but I'm also afraid of sparks. So I, I don't really know how to start with with all that. So how did you okay. was this was this something you learned from when you were doing your apprenticeship or did did, did, you, did you just pick it up? Oh yeah, yeah. Off? So in industrial design, um, we had an entry course into almost every material that you could possibly think of. We've done textiles, leathers, right. woods, metals. Although I was right. always fascinated with material science and. Um, how to transform a certain material into something usable, right? And how to mix these materials together to make an entirely new product. Like that, that was like what I thought the spirit of industrial industrial design was. So like I, I was just really interested in metal and how metal moves and how metal holds a shape. Like um, not really with 13 Lucky Monkey because they don't, like when you grind silver, it doesn't spark. Like sil- silver right. does not have a flash. Okay. It does not combust. Like okay. unlike titanium, which basically explodes when you grind it, <laughs> it's really dangerous. Or zirconium, wow. where okay. it sticks to your grinder and then it like it, it sticks all in one place and then it combusts and then it okay. flies like a fireball towards you. That's why I always yeah okay, yeah wow. that, that's why I always wear like long wow. sleeves like when I'm grinding metal I have like yeah. a full apron protected gear respirator yeah gloves and all that because it's like um it's really dangerous uh I I was like I was experimenting a lot and you know I wasn't doing it the very I was I wasn't doing it very smart because I didn't really have a mentor for knife making and you know. Like looking back, I would have saved a lot of time if I did. You know, so I, I was like experimenting with steel and how to sculpt steel using an angle grinder, and then eventually I uh, made the jump and purchased a professional, not a professional, a, a semi bootleg bench grinder, no belt grinder. It's like a grinder with a really long sandpaper belt that goes around right. like that. Yeah. It's- yeah, it's a uh, it's one of those pound thread bills that yeah I yeah yeah like, yeah. Really like that yeah because like yeah. it really makes a difference with the quality of the knives that you're able to make like when I was in when I was in the Ligan, 
um, I used to use a file for everything. And I got really good results wow. from that, but then I got really tired. Like <laughs> this is absolutely yeah. like, just pushing and pulling soft metal. Like yeah. it's, it's no way to move metal. Um, and especially with hardened metal, the files just won't cut it. So yeah. Um, when I purchased a uh, semi functional grinder, there, there's a local maker. His name is Freddy Ignacio and he made my first grinder. Like it was not, a, <laughs> it was not a good grinder, but then it was a working grinder. Uh, it was made of like flat bar and skateboard wheels. The, 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 the some of the motor wheels were made of plywood. And once in a while, the plywood would come loose and fly to the other, across the shop. Oh. So it wasn't the safest one either. Um, that's why like we had to decrease the speed by putting more pull and all that. But yeah, um, it actually ruined my belts faster and it was a lot of danger. But then I, I made like perfectly right. good knives on that grinder. It was lovely. It's like, and then I made the investment for a professional grinder. Like it's, um, it's almost a $2,000 WKM motor. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, it pays wow. for itself though. It's like, it's one of my favorite tools in the workshop. Like if you had, um, if you had like earmuffs on, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't know yes. it's on because of just how smooth it's running. Like, wow. yeah, yeah. Okay. It's one of my favorite tools in the workshop and it really upped my production per month, uh, my productivity per month. So it was a really slow climb, like, um, between, you know, uh, paying rent for a space and, um, trying, uh, paying for new materials, going through the learning curve of learning a new material and investing in more equipment and my own salary and all the other back ends in running a business. It's been a really slow climb, but then I love it. You know, it, it was a, it was a process. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that at this point, you're not just the only person in Balletum Gates. Am I correct? Like, pretty sure you have a team now, or do you still do everything? No, no I, I have a studio in. Um, his name is Michael, and he's he helps me with a lot of the grunt labor. Like, for example, like cutting materials, yeah. keeping the shop tidy. And um, he's very useful. Like, um, he helps me polish the blades right. sometimes. And um, right. he's still... I, I, I still shout at him on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's mostly just to remind um just to remind him of things he's missing out on because like I, I let him do tasks whereas I have the big picture. So sometimes he cuts something right. like one millimeter too small and then he has to do it again. Right. Which, you know, is really irritating on my end because I try to be as specific as possible with my instructions. And if he wastes material, I have to shoulder the cost for the material. Right. Yeah. Cause it's all, at the end of the day, the back end is going to suffer, right? With, with experimenting yeah, yeah. the wrong thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I'm really, I'm really pleased with, um, the, the progress. Like we, we had a, we had like a really rough, um, climb to get, to get his standards to what I'm currently looking at. Because like any, any layperson can cut bar stock, but then, the, the precise way that I need to have everything done is something that is normally lost on um, your average day person. Like, I think that's the word for it. Because like um, some of the forms for the knife 
are very particular. Like I have an example. So there's this piece called the Nakiri. And uh, yeah, so something like this, the profile is very precise and I'm very particular with the curves because like, for example, this isn't a straight line. It's like a really gentle curve and people don't really notice it yeah, because okay, it's in detail. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But then it just contributes to the entire speed or, or the look of the piece. It makes the knife look yes. more aggressive. But then sometimes, you know, he doesn't follow that the way it's supposed to be followed. And I get very stressed because the knife looks different. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. then now we're mostly like, <laughs> we're, we're relatively comfortable with how the work is going, you know? Right. Right. So the reason I ask that is because knife making, it's, it's kind of a one person job, but running a business, you kind of, you're, you're going to need help right? yeah. in the long run. Yeah, especially with all the grunt labor. Like, I, I, I need to keep the right. shop clean. Yeah, I, I need to keep um, the space clean. And um, I can't spend like half the day polishing a knife. It's like, yes, that are relatively brainless to do. I just let, I just outsource it or let Michael do. And um, yeah, no, it's, it's increased my productivity quite a lot. And I'm really happy with it. Now, like back then, it was stressful. It's like <laughs> he ruined so many <laughs> knives just to get where he's at right now. So, do you was it difficult for you to kind of mentor this new person? Like, was well, because again, you're talking about we're talking about adjustments here, right? So, when you got to that point, was it difficult for you to take on this extra person who have to teach him the ropes and then to instruct him and then to have him waste um, material? We're not shitting on Michael here. Uh, this is not a shitting on Michael episode, but it's just, it's just, I just wanted to learn the intricacies of your industry. There was a, there was a time where I would like show up um, and like watch him do the work, and then maybe get get mad a little, and then make him watch how I do the work, and then he asks to do it exactly how I do it. So like, I because I have no idea how to teach. Like, I, I'm. I didn't know how to teach another human being how to what I do. So uh, um, it, it was a it was a process too. It was a little bit of a journey for uh, both of us. <laughs> like uh, there were things that I learned while teaching him too. So that was it was not it was not a bad experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, the reason I uh, we're going in, okay we're going into this a little bit more is because. I want to know if bladesmithing or knife making or the industry that you're in is actually something that people can learn right away. Is it a difficult task to learn? Does it take time? How long will it take for somebody like me to learn how to make a knife? I mean, I, I think it's possible. Like, I, I think it would take a really long time for someone to learn how to make a knife like like that. <laughs> you know? But then right. I, I don't think it's... I, like it's one of those hobbies that a lot of people pick up if they have like if they want to make a tool. Like I, I know the hobby is pretty popular in the states. Like there's forums for beginner right. bladesmiths and forums for beginner knife makers, and some knife making supply shops also carry like knife kits where they sell you like a hardened blade and then you make the handle. So I, I think it's like a hobby. Wow. Yeah, it's possible to learn everything yourself like 
uh, I learned it without a mentor. I don't think it's possible to learn everything yourself because you need a lot of insight from people who are already in the industry. But I, I, I believe that you don't need a mentor to teach, to like guide your hand to the start because I didn't have that. But yeah, like with, with enough like stubbornness, I, I guess you could probably learn it yourself. Right. Okay. And you, you know, if you're getting into knife making, there's a lot of soft skills from different areas of craft that you need to learn, like woodworking, metalworking, how to blend wood and metal. Because like some areas, especially the handle, like there's this thing called the bolster. And this bolster is made of titanium. And the handle is made of albino carabao horn. So both of these materials cut very differently. Like if you were to get sandpaper and your finger and you rub that, the carabao horn would depress because it basically grinds off faster than the titanium would. So there's like a learning curve to learn how to make sure that the sculpture is even, the geometry is flat, and it has to look very precise. Gets, gets, gets. See, see, it's from what you're describing, this seems to be a very technical um, art form here with the, with the way you design your blades and you present them to your clients. So how long does... Uh, product or a knife usually take in designing? Like how long from the inception of the idea to the final product? Well, right now it's a lot shorter because like I already have a pretty substantial portfolio. So whenever people have something made, they just like pick something that I've done in the past and tell me like, make something like this, but then don't make it exactly the same because I want you to go crazy with your creativity. I'm like, okay, yes, thank you. So I do something and, you know, I am very transparent about what I'm doing with the knife, especially if it's something new. Like if I want to use new material, like let's say stainless Damascus or some kind of crazy handle material, I usually, I'm super transparent with the client. It's like, this is how much it's going to cost. This is how much extra it might be. And this is how long it's going to take. So... Sometimes that's not exactly followed in in context of timeline because there's a learning curve and sometimes I mess up. But then normally, like from from inception of the idea, <laughs> concept conception of the idea, um, that normally takes like a couple days. And then when it's their turn on my wait list, it usually takes like a week to make from start to finish. So uh, like if someone was to order from me now. It would, like, depending on how complex the design is, it's like we'd finalize everything in a few days. And then, like, by the time it's ready next year, like February something, it will take around a week to make from start to finish. Wow, a week. Okay. Because we talked about this before we hit record. Forged in Fire only gives you four hours, yes. right? And this is how we're going to get into the Forged and Fire thing uh, and uh, topic of things here. Forged and Fire, is that a realistic depiction of what you do? Like, when you watch? I'd say not really. Um, <laughs> so in Forged and Fire, they don't really show you the a, a little bit of the back end because like right after you quench the knife in oil and then it flames up, the, the knife is as hard as glass. So if you drop it, it will break. So they also temper it in the back end. But then, like putting a knife in an oven for two hours three times, that's not sexy. You know, you just stare at the knife. 
and then it heats up. So that's what they do. And um, I, I'm not sure if the judges temper it at a very specific temperature. Because like you, you can't make a reasonably functional knife in just five hours. You you need to account for time it would take to temper, and um, yeah, the time with the time it would take to temper. Because tempering is like a really long process. Um, tempering like my protocol is um, three cycles for two hours each. So for example, um, this knife was soaked at like 250 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, three times. So that, that makes sure that the knife is extremely stable at its current hardness. Because if you skip out on this temperature, tempering cycle, you risk like getting a really brittle edge with like a really unstable steel structure. So it will chip, it will dent, it will crack over time. And that's basically what we're trying to avoid when you're doing high-end stuff. Right, because you're you're making essentially heirloom knives here. Right? You want these knives to last uh, for more than a person's yeah. lifetime. I like overbuilding my knives. Like, you're probably never gonna need a titanium bolster on a kitchen knife. Like, it's and you know that part will probably never be stressed enough to the point that the full benefit of the titanium bolster would be experienced. But then it has a nice look. And I like the idea of overbuilding something, and my clients do too. It's like, and you know, for the sake of, in context to handle materials, I stabilize everything. Like that means, like you get raw material, and then you put it in a vat of liquid plastic. You pump it. You you put it under vacuum, so all the air inside the material goes out, and the liquid plastic goes in. And then you harden the plastic once it's fully soaked into the material. So that just adds another layer of like high performance, complexity. yeah, complexity yeah. and in, in processing. So I try to keep everything in its peak possible in, in the material zenith, you know, the peak possible performance of the material, because like you're not gonna need it. It's just a good thing to have, you know. And over time, you'll probably experience right. the benefits of it eventually. It's like, yeah. Right. The long the 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 longevity of the knife will probably not be experienced in your lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, if you do a good job, that's what you're yeah. after, right? You want these knives to last longer than you do because they're metal and they're yeah. made to cut things. Right? Yeah. Right. So, uh, with with your line of work, I mean, I know you're focused on kitchen knives right now, but have you ever thought of branching out into other types of knives? I actually started with art pieces. I, I wasn't really doing kitchen knives when I started. I was doing like weird um, traditional Philippine, like not traditional, cultural Filipino designs where I, I'd like do a, a really artistic interpretation of a Filipino weapon. Right. And, you know, those didn't sell. Like no, no one really cared about it enough to pay for it. But then when I did, when I did knives, when I did chef knives, it's like chefs love their knives. You know, um, if you use, if a chef is really serious about their knife and some dishwasher just tossed it in yeah. the, like, in the sink yeah. and, you know, chip a small area of the edge, like, that chef's going to lose his shit. Yeah. Like, they're, they're super particular about the knives that they use. And it's very personal because you're using it, you, you need it for your livelihood. 
So it seemed like the perfect, um, it seems like the perfect fit for what I wanted to do because I wanted to devote my time into making something that someone would value and, you know, not just value once by looking at it, but like actually using, using it as a tool. And <laughs> it makes me really happy that they're, they're actually using this to make food. So there's a story to it. It's like I, I use crazy materials to make a knife and then they use my knife to process materials to make food. You know, it, right. it just tickles me in a little bit. Right. No, I bet I bet that brings you some joy. You see, when you're able to create something, the theme of the, first of all, the theme for my current season is talking to creators. When you're able to create something, whether it be like online content or in your case, like an actual tool that has purpose and function, joy but you're able to experience that joy uh, vicariously. Yeah. So have you ever encountered like a client that asked for a ridiculous request and were you able <laughs> to fulfill that request? Yeah, well, <laughs> ridiculous request. There was one client that um, wanted me to design a knife based off his watch. And wow. um, yeah, no, the, the watch was a Grand Seiko, and it was a. It's almost done because, like, th this knife is really intricate and it has a lot of complex parts. So sometimes I would mess up the blade and have to like spend more for the steel. And this is like one of the most longest projects that I've had because sometimes I just have to put the knife down because if I spend too much time on it, it's like all the other customs would get pushed back. So like th this knife has, it's almost done. Like the the thing has been delayed for well for a year already. My God, yeah. But, but then I'm like super transparent about this with the client because it's like the the materials he wants are already expensive in and of itself. So uh, you know I I can't just throw everything at that knife. Yeah. So. Uh, like and they're all the parts i can't make it in my own workshop so uh, sometimes i have to outsource like a little to a little bit that needs to be machined because like i i don't have i don't have a galoosh it's like i don't have a rose dial that that's like a exclusively watchmaker or like high-end watchmaker tool so yeah. sometimes i need to get parts outsourced and when I get it back, it's like, it's not even. So I have to get it sent out again right. and then retool. So it, it's been one of the longest standing projects that I have now. And it, it's been frustrating for both of us. But then like, I'm like, I want to do it. And, you know, at some point I, I offered the guy like, you know, I want to finish this. Um, but then if you can't wait, I can offer you a refund because it's like, it's it's taking really long. It's been a year already. Yeah, right, right. So you, you we've talked about different points of the blade making process here. You know, you started with designing, handle construction, grinding, etc., etc. So what for you as a knife maker is that the most important aspect of knife making? Well, um, so I, I'd say it. It's, it's not just one thing, but then if I was to boil it down to uh, like two things, it, it, it would be the handle, like the handle construction, because knives are made to be used. And 
they're, they're supposed to be held comfortably for a long period of time. So uh, I, I'm really particular about the handle design and how it interacts with the person. It's like, we, we, we do not have like levers. We, we have like hands that need to grip an object. So it's like, I'm really particular about the handle design and how it fits in your hand and how you interact with it for like an R, two R, three R's of cutting. So that's one. And then the other one is the edge, like the blade geometry. It's like how the blade is shaped along its edge because that indicates how the knife will cut. It's like you, you could you could make a really bad steel cut well for a short amount of time. But then if you make a really good steel, it's like if you make the edge wrong, you, you're going to get like a bad knife regardless. You'll need to send it out to someone to get it thin and fixed up. So yeah, edge geometry and ergonomics in context of the handle. Nice, nice. Okay, so I uh, this is just my this is gonna be my last forging fire question here. But they <laughs> used to they use different materials on that show. Sometimes unorthodox materials. Like and you've talked about using titanium and other things in your uh, blade construction as well. So what's like the most complicated or say most uh different uh material that you've used the most untraditional material that you've used in making a knife well like i'd say for the blade i'd say it's stainless damascus um you know people say damascus a lot but then damascus is really just jargon it's not damascus is not material damascus is like a jargon term for pattern welded steel Right, like, like imagine two different kinds of steel that's been stacked up, and then forged, and then folded, and then forged, and then folded, and then twisted to make like a solid to make a solid bar. So right. there's a pattern on the steel, right. and that's essentially what uh, pattern welded steel is. And people just coined it as Damascus because I don't know <laughs> they think it's cool. Right. Um, but then, like, the quality of Damascus really varies because. It's like there are some low end Damascus, there are some low end Damascus billets where you know um, they use cheap steel and then the Damascus performs horribly. And there are also high end Damascus where you could use like two high end stainless steels to make the pattern and it performs really well. It looks really, it looks beautiful. There's just a learning curve to it. So, my favorite material to use hands down is Damas steel, which is a brand. It's a Swedish brand of high-end stainless Damascus where they use like two high-end stainless steels to make like their patterns. Like this one is made of Damascus steel. And if you can see the pattern, yeah, it has a really nice... For the listeners, he's showing us a knife that looks yeah. like lava, essentially. It's like yeah, amazing. yeah. So yeah, this was a really nice um, Damascus steel pattern. And it's like, I, I love it. Right. Yeah, so I just want to say, if you can show the knife again, I do love the part of the tag that has that. Wow, I'm using technical terms here. The part of the tag yeah. that looks like it has rock on it. That part on the upper this right. One? Yeah, that that looks very okay, cool. Yeah. Is that is that also part of the steel? Did you add that in? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so um, people ask if I forge these, and no, I, I sometimes I do. But then, in the case of stainless Damascus, like if you forge the steel, you'd probably break it. So in this case, um, I sculpted it. Like I was a sculptor. There's, like I, I trained with Ryan, so I, I know how to sculpt textures. And when I sculpt this, I'm imagining rock. 
like um, chiseled slate rock, right. something like that. And I, I wanted an inter- an intermediary texture between the blade and the handle. So right. that's what that is. It's like if I did add that, it would look pretty bland. Right. So it's just for for character. And also, like a really happy accident was that it's like when you're crushing garlic, you crush it using that texture, so the garlic oh, doesn't fly. Right, yeah. right, right. So that's that's just really intelligent design. If you think yeah. about it. Uh, Sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, cats are always welcome on the Class Club podcast. So, is there as we wrap up here, closing in the last few questions. Have you ever made a knife that you're really proud of? Like you make this knife and you suddenly don't want to give it to the client because you like it so much. I mean, I, I in my personal belief, uh, like the the knife I'm most proud of is always the next knife. Mm. You know, you I, I'm not attached to the work because I made the work, right? And um, I have favorite materials, and they're they're not favorites because of what they are. They're my favorites because of what they can do and how beautiful it looks like on a knife. It's like, I, I'm not one to really collect objects. I, I like to collect material because I can process these materials to make more crazy objects. You know, I, I, I think that's like a strange difference between um, makers and pe- and collectors. It's like collectors like to keep the finished product, but then makers like to keep the product that has started because it has so much possibilities and I really love that. You know, um, I've experimented with some really crazy materials like fossil mammoth ivory and wow. it's like horn, stabilized woods, different steels, different metals that's been folded on itself like copper, brass, molten. It's It's been... Yeah, uh, vibrate you know, what happened. I'm not getting it. You haven't got into that. Yeah, no, I, I want at some point. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, uh, there are favorite designs though. Like, I really enjoy making nakiris like this one. This, this yes. one's like specifically a vegetable cleaver. And I, I really enjoy making like really long blades. Like, I, I'm not trained to use like a 10 or 12 inch chef knife. It's like, I, I find it uh, personally unwieldy because of its size. But then some chefs, like, they, they want, like, a 10 inch buto. It looks like a sword. Right. So, uh, that, that was that was lovely. Yeah, I think I've seen that in sushi restaurants, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, similar. Yeah, it's right. similar. Uh, the one in sushi restaurants is, like, a shujihiki or a nagiba. It's, right. it's a little bit shorter, and it's right. also a little bit more precise with okay. what it is. In terms of shape, yeah. But then gyutos are lovely. It's like it's a general prep thing. And I'm not sure what anyone would No, I am also. They use it for large chunks of beef. You're you're not gonna use a ten inch knife for a potato. You know? exactly. yeah. <laughs> Probably like large slabs of beef, large slabs of fish, you know. So yeah, um those are my favorite designs. I like I like Japanese style knives and then I hybrid them. And what that means is like you know, if you have a Japanese blade, you have like a contemporary modern handle. So that's like what a hybrid is because all Japanese knife handles look the same. They're right. like off the and straight. And it's, it's like, I find it right. Yeah. Right. So being a blade maker yourself, and this will be my last podcast question for you. 
uh, being a blade maker yourself, I assume that you use the knives that you make. So yeah. that, does that process help you design your next knife or to fine tune your design process? And if so, what is the what are the favorite things you like to make with your knives? Um, so I cook, yeah, I, I cook, and I, I use all my knives. I've used every single one of my knives at some point because, like, you know, it's not really more for making sure that it works. It's more for like just because it looks really pretty and right. <laughs> I, I, I like want, to yeah, it. I know, I understand. You want to test drive the car before you sell it, right? Yeah, yeah, well, so, something like that. Yeah, yeah right. So I, I've used each and every one of my knives, and it's like. I really like making like anything out of vegetable, you know? Um, it's like, I, I really like chopping up potatoes. <laughs> I like chopping up carrots. I like chopping up hard vegetables. Uh, I like chopping up like large vegetables because that's really when you get to feel the full function of the knife. Like if you're like chopping an onion, maybe, but then if you're chopping like a large potato, then, oh yeah, it's cool. Right. Yeah. And um, I've also got a lot of feedback from my clients, you know, some of my clients are professional chefs and some of them use it until now. And, you know, they have their own knife rolls from other makers because I'm not the only high-end knife maker in the world. Like there are like makers in America, makers in like France, Australia, Austria, and all that, Australia. So they get, they get to compare whose work they like the most. And, you know, I, sometimes I ask if a person's collection is very extensive like it's like how does this stack up against say a Don Yugen knife or or like a Mareko Mamasi knife? Like let, let me know how it stacks up against it because I have my own knife making idols and it's more for design than anything. So yeah. Right. All right, no, very well yeah, very well said, Sean. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. I really, really learned a lot in our short conversation here. Uh so thank you. <laughs> So if you want to let the people know where they can find you on social media, if they want to pick up one of your fabulous knives, please let them know right now. Well, yeah, they could find me on Baletta Blades. It's just at Baletta Blades on Instagram. If you search Baletta Blades on Google, you'll probably find me. Um, Facebook, Baletta Blades, Sean Alonzo. Um, Blade Forums, maybe. I don't know. I took down most of my stuff there already <laughs> because like, it's been... It's like the, the list has been quite crazy. So right. yeah, just I'll, I'll limit it to Instagram, Facebook. So just right. Baletta Blades. All yeah. right. Thank you so much, Sean Alonso of Baletta Blades. Thank you so much, Shino. for the week again i would like to thank sean alonzo of balete blades if you so happen to want to invest in a kitchen knife please do check out his social media or you know what just follow him for the occasional eye candy kasi sobrang ganda ng mga gawa niya guys it's just next level in the artistry and craftsmanship also, guys, speaking of artistry and craftsmanship, if you like what you hear right now, I would appreciate a review on Spotify. 
give me a five star review or kahit anong stars however you please and share my podcast and follow me on Spotify and on YouTube as well where I will upload last week's video only or video version of the podcast with Sari and Chi for all the links to all the things that I do if you want to buy me a coffee if you want to use my referral codes you can do so by logging on to my link tree linktr.ee slash chino supersize that will be available in the podcast description below again this has been a podcast network asia production powered of course by podmetrics my name is chino liao good night The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. <laughs>